Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the July-themed edition of Mixed Nonfiction here with your host, Nick Muniz. Today we've got David Sklansky, The Theory of Poker. He says poker is fun because within a few minutes of learning how to play, you can be making money. What other sport is like that? Hopscotch? Back of the line. It takes 10 years to start making money at any recreational activity. He says from an expert's point of view, it is this veneer of simplicity that keeps the cash cows coming back. It doesn't take long for a billiards player, a golfer, to see that they're being hustled. In poker, all you do is sit there. Nobody could tell how good you are actually at the game. These are big tips you could take out to your life. How to win an argument with your wife. Which pianist should you never gamble with? Ben Folds. <laughs> What's Mark Cuban's poker alter ego? The card shark. Any player can get a lucky hand. It takes refined skill to win as many tournaments as David Sklansky. Seriously, you're going to learn today what your hourly rate is. And he's saying as long as you're winning in the long run, you're going to lose some hands. Whatever your current level of play is, there's something you're going to learn. Semi-bluffing, stat-upping. This guy is really in the weeds. He'll get exotic, talking about seven-card stud, AC-Ducey. His point is you got to learn the theory behind poker before you get into the higher-up games. Bro, it's just game theory. Literally, this will have you winning the game of Monopoly next time your friends come over. You're playing paper football. You're playing penny hockey. Rolling dice. I don't know what you guys do. This is applicable to all games. They just opened the Monarch Casino in Colorado. It's a bar and a brothel. Their slogan is liquor up front, poker in the rear. It's a long quote from the Sklansk. Some players substitute tricks and ploys for sound precept and sound play. They act surely, try to anger other players in the game. In a word, use almost any gimmick other than good play to win the money. Yeah, there's hacks even in the world of poker. He says in the world of professional Las Vegas poker, eventually their tricks and ploys are played out and they fade into the Las Vegas night like so many failed gamblers earning a living driving a cab. Why do cab drivers expect tips? It isn't fair. Poker logic. It's not purely mathematical when to hold, when to fold. This is our July-themed edition. We usually go to the stock market. Now I'm going to teach you how to game dealers this time around. Yeah, you might get your fingers broken, even though it's not illegal to count cards. The pit boss is allowed to put your head in a vice. Um, can you please stop crushing my head? Street justice. I love it. Quote, making money involves saving it on bad nights as well as winning it on good nights. Don't worry about quitting a loser. If you have the best of it, you'll win in the long run, just as surely as roulette wheels win in the casino for the long run. You're going to math out your odds today and learn how to make this a sustainable way to make money. Wild book. Why was the orphan bad at poker? He'd never seen a full house. <laughs> this is Jerry Seinfeld. At a poker game. Seinfeld at a poker game. What's the deal? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after a short sponsor. About the author David Sklansky. His Wikipedia has a good poker face. 
He was born in 1947. He wrote the Fundamental Principles and then followed that up with The Theory of Poker. This is his only good book. He was like a, a statistical analysis in college and he never used it. He dropped out of UPenn. Does dropping out of UPenn make you poison, Ivy? He did analysis. What do you get when you remove the Y from analysis? Anal Alabama. <laughs> well, what's his day job? You can't make money living off poker. He's been doing it since 1960. Bro, I'm just thinking about robbing underground poker games. <laughs> it's a good way to get shot. The first tournament won him $15,000. Two years into the grind, he made a 25K tournament. And then he said he went on the winning streak. We'll hear about that today. Why can't a pirate play poker? Because they sit on the deck. <laughs> Did you hear about the poker player and the palm reader? He refused to show her his hand. We will be right back to start this thing. Chapter 1, Expectations and Hourly Rate. David starts out pretty technical here. Mathematic expectation is the amount a bet will average winning or losing. It is an extremely important concept for the gambler because it shows him how to evaluate most gambling problems. Before placing a bet, you can calculate if the hand is even worth your time to be there. Time is money. We know that here. You're going to need these equations. Gets a little heady. He says, you and a friend are betting $1, even money on a coin flip. Every time it comes up heads, you win. Each time tails, you lose. The odds of it coming up heads are one to one, and you're betting a dollar to a dollar. So your mathematical expectation is zero. You cannot expect to win. It's a true 50-50. Mathematically, you're might be ahead when you're at coin flip number 10, but by coin flip number 200, it evens out. It's about being able to zoom out and see what your hourly rate is, and that's kind of what expectation is. So that's all urban myth that, well, the heads side of the coin is actually heavier due to the engraving, making it come up tails. Shut up. You have to zoom out to actually try to get smart sometimes instead of hyper-focusing. I have a theory, people, just from reading all these books, and I, we have to break up these examples because that was already fucking confusing. It's a coin flip, people. Keep up. <laughs> Neuroscientists, they think that brains are random number generators in reverse. So for me, I quantify this as your brain is like a, a calculator, bro. It knows odds before it happens. You have that feeling inside of you, your subconscious your brain is smarter than just the analytical zoom-in part. All of these odds are happening behind the scenes. And if you could listen to that gut, I think you're going to be a better gambler. There's some real tips rather than expected odds. And let me just science that up a little bit more. Like, if there's a 5 hertz in your left ear, 9 hertz in your right ear, your brain automatically splits the difference. So you hear in 7 hertz even though that's not what's happening around you. These shortcuts that your brain does, it can help you in certain situations. And yes, sometimes trusting your gut will be a bad decision. But it's kind of the best calculator we have. <laughs> Got a bigger quote here from David. Mathematical expectation has nothing to do with results. 
the imbecile might win the first 10 coin flips in a row, but getting 2 to 1 odds on even money propositions, you still earn 50 cents per $1 bet. It makes no difference whether you win or lose a specific bet or series. It matters the bankroll. So he's saying entirety. You have to look at your whole season rather than the individual game. And yeah, this isn't fun. <laughs> like You're breaking down every single hand, every single game that you play. We're trying to make a living out of this here. And yeah, you got to turn it into work, basically. Quote, serious gamblers bet only when they have the best of it. When they have the worst of it, they pass. Yeah, you're going to have to pass on the free drinks as well. That's how they inhibit your odds calculator. <laughs> Quote, mathematically, expectation is at the heart of every gambling situation. When a bookmaker requires football bettors to say $11 to win $10, he has a positive expectations of $0.50 cents per $10 bet. And we're not going to talk about sports betting today because those are fixed odds for specific games. We're learning the timeless games here. And you always hear from your uh, book betting friends, the line, I can't get on the right line. They do the math beforehand so that the odds are not in your favor. But there's ways that we could game the felt, the table games. Bro, <laughs> this could be some like period in history where you could actually make some money. It's not just a lottery. Yeah, in sports betting, unless you know the referee, you can never have an advantage. And in poker, you can bluff. You can have your own advantage. Bigger quote, whichever play gives you a higher positive expectation or a lower negative expectation is the right one. For example, when you have a 16 against the dealer's 10, you are a favorite to lose. However, if that 16 is an 8-8, eight and eight, you should split. Yeah, doubling is doubling your bets. And then by splitting the 8s against the 10, you might stand to lose more money, but you have a lower negative expectation. Yeah, and he's saying you can hit more on two 8s. It's fucking confusing, people. I knew this wasn't going to be the most narrative fiction-friendly Nick's nonfiction. I should just start doing Nick's textbooks, <laughs> breaking down calculus. Bro, that movie 21, it's about people from MIT. And they find the smartest kids, fly them out to Las Vegas. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's nonfiction. It's about Kevin Spacey grooming young kids. Quote, for the most part, you will have to base your assessment on your judgment and experience. Your gut. But you can use certain mathematical guidelines. Exactly, bro. Your brain, that analytical side, that's the guideline. But you got to go with what's in your stomach. Your penis. I said on the previous show, your uh, gut has as many neurons as a cat. I'm going to start <laughs> trusting my cat to put a bet down on the roulette wheel. Yeah, you're always looking for the play that gives you the highest expectation of return. <laughs> Whatever like your job is you're, that you're gambling, you should go for the best company, the highest gamble. But again, then you have to suffer harder and you don't have to suffer when you play poker. Not a great comparison. Sorry. My point here is that your brain perks up when you bend the cards and you start calculating. Oh, I have high face cards. This is a good one. There's all this machinery going on behind your conscious. Quote, last one for the chapter while I get too hippie about poker. 
Uh, once you have decided what your hourly rate is, you should realize that what you are doing is earning. You are no longer gambling in the traditional sense. You should no longer be anxious to have a good day or upset when you have a bad day. If you play regularly, you should simply feel that it is better to be playing poker making $20 an hour and able to come and go as you please rather than working an eight-hour shift making $15. Okay, just rub it in my face, David Sklansky. I'm pushing shopping carts when I should be on the poker table. I'm going to try. <laughs> I've never had like more than $100 literally at a casino that I could willingly go and gamble with. I'm sure that's relatable. Calculate your hourly rate. Get your poker IQ up. <laughs> Chapter 2. The Fundamental Theorem. Now that you know how to avoid being the loser, you gotta learn some tricks for how to make other people lose. That's the game of poker. It's ruthless, toothless capitalism. <laughs> David says, I love capitalism, quote, Furthermore, it is sometimes correct to play incorrectly. You may, for example, purposely make an inferior play to gain in a future hand or a more round of betting. I need hand, Jerry! You also may play less than optimally against weak opponents who have only a limited... So yeah, he's saying hustle people. Act like you suck. Bluff. Along with monitoring the economics of the table, you got to have this higher brain thing of looking at the social makeup of the people. Who's the whale? Who's here getting drunk? I bet you have to play poker to be in the CIA. <laughs> you got a quote? You have reduced your hourly rate but have ensured yourself a win. Why give weaker players any chance to get lucky and quit big winners or get lucky and bust you? You still get the money playing unless the... Yeah, bro, my favorite poker scene maybe from any movie. It's from my favorite movie, In Time. Justin Timberlake, we only got five minutes to save the world. He's playing poker against a billionaire and you have to bet with how much time you have in your life. And like I say, I don't bring more than $100 to a casino. That's a day of my life working. I'm not going to gamble away days of my life. But in this movie, it's how JT becomes a millionaire. You got to gamble it at some point. And he, the guy tries to wipe him off the table with one round. That's what you have to do with these little underlings. Don't let them have fun at your table. Seriously, get ruthless. Crush the fucking competition at the table. And go watch In Time. It's very stoic. I could go so fucking occult on this book. The dealer is the Federal Reserve. Bro, all of this is fundamental theorem. Some heavy book shit. I didn't think it was going to all come together on a poker book. <laughs> Nick's textbook, so I'm telling you, it's coming. Yeah, he says if everybody's cards were showing at all times, there would always be a precise, mathematically correct play. You're thinking... It, there should always be the number on the screen <laughs> when you're watching poker on TV. There's a 60% chance this man wins. That's not taking into account the human variability. And that sounds very hippie, but like nobody's cards are showing, so you cannot know the odds. That's why he said at the beginning of the chapter, break the rules, confuse other people. It gives you more hand. Quote, any player who deviates from his correct play would be reducing his mathematical expectation and, and increasing the expectation of his opponents. 
So like I said, you got to make other people lose. You got to get in other people's heads to get hand. And this is what bitches do in marriages. They try to get in your head and mess with sex, the most valuable thing, to gain a little bit of hand in the marriage. <laughs> Very healthy. Seriously, do this at the poker table. Play like an idiot, reckless for the few, first few rounds. No one knows what's coming your way. <laughs> Quote, of course, if all cards were exposed at all times, there wouldn't be any game of poker. The art of poker is filling the gaps in the incomplete information provided by your opponents. Betting, exposing cards in open-handed games, and at the same time preventing your opponent from discovering any more than what you want them to know about your hand. <laughs> Bro, this is the art of war. This isn't poker. Deception. Huge. What? I need to get into poker. <laughs> I'm saying, by this definition, you would think women love poker. It's all about deception, manipulation. <laughs> Good thing hoes can't do math. <laughs> yeah, women, like, you can make attractiveness. They make, it makes people act different towards you. It's a bluff. There's no substance. <laughs> yeah, I told the story before of my friend growing up. His dad would make us play AC Doocy with him. We were children. We didn't know what was happening. He would take our money. <laughs> and then we would play a ping pong with him. And if you scored on him, he'd be like, no, I beat myself. You don't get a point there. Game theory. This guy was on the fundamentals. <laughs> Quote, suppose your hand is not as good as your opponent's when you bet. Your opponent calls your bet and you lose. But in fact, you have not lost. You have gained. Why? Because obviously your opponent's correct play, if he knew what you had had, would be to raise. Wow, so he's even saying when you have pocket rockets or the best hand in the game, take a loss sometimes. Yeah, that's some high-level poker. He's going, yeah, the power of bluffing, baby. That's what it is. Final quote for the chapter. According to the fundamental theorem of poker, you play winning poker by playing as closely as possible to the way you would play if you could see all your opponent's cards. And you would try to make your opponent's play as if they were far away from this utopian level as possible. I think Michael Lewis deserves a Pulitzer Prize for calling his book Liar's Poker. This is what the stock market is. Do you actually have the assets to back up that purchase? <laughs> Who is it like... Uh, truth.com whoever the platform trump is on they offered joe rogan a hundred million dollars to come to them instead of spotify you don't have a hundred million dollars it was a bluff they got called dumb example i should we have the adventures of business book coming up so i won't make podcast examples men love poker because it's straight darwinism women love poker because it's bluffing makeup men and women chapter three the anti-structure we've all been there you're at the table you have two chips left and the big blind comes around more men have fell victim to the big blind than the nevada state gambling commission <laughs> without an ante every hand would just turn into a crapshoot the ante keeps you invested Quote, the two extremes, no ante and an absurdly high ante, suggest a general principle of play. The lower the ante in comparison to future bets, 
the fewer hands you should play. The higher the ante, the more hands you should play. Or in the language of the poker room, the lower the ante, the tighter you should play. The higher the ante, the looser. Enter. It's very counterintuitive. Just like the game of life. People always compare having kids to being the ante in the game of life. Oh, you're not invested. If you were to actually have kids, you would be playing different and caring more about the community. Like, if you're abiding to game theory, you should actually play more aggressive when you have a higher ante. <laughs> so if you have kids, you should be the zealot. You should be the one trying to make Earth the best place possible rather than fucking, you know, doing what boomers do. <laughs> Take society serious, would you, Zoomer? Maybe when you stop earnestly referring to children as poker chips. You're not even doing game theory right. That's a stupid fucking example. <laughs> kids are not poker chips. <laughs> And you should care about the world whether or not you have kids. You can hear it in my voice. I don't trust banks. All my savings are in poker chips. <laughs> Whatever, man. Most important part about antes for this chapter, he said, It is a common fallacy for players to think in terms of money they have already put into the pot. It's not your money anymore. If you already paid the taxes, it's the government's money. It's already in the pot. <laughs> If the big blind is coming your way, like, just hope that you slip on a pickle at a McDonald's so that you can sue and get some of that money back. That's how you get the pot, the community chest. <laughs> sue people. America. So if we do my bit and, like, apply this poker logic to life, thinking in terms of the pot, <laughs> I just did it. But the money that I owe for rent, this is another, like, anti-up. You want to be part of society? You got to pay $800 a month in the shittiest city. Fuck you. Needs in our society are antis. It doesn't make sense. Like, if you want to move up the poker tables, up the pyramid, that should be winning hands. Who cares? The Federal Reserve can fucking print poker chips. To draw this example to the highest, <laughs> it's like if you were at the casino and they just started throwing more chips on the table that only the dealer can use. The Vegas Strip doesn't end at Fremont Street. <laughs> Let me get some academic on this, because I do sound a little bit fucking communist, too. Academics call this the Pareto Principle. It happens in humans, it happens in clams, in trees, in suns. It's a universal principle, a fundamental. 20% of stars hold 80% of the mass. The hottest 20% of guys on Tinder have 80% of the matches. The Pareto principle, nothing is ever equal in a true flow of resources. It sucks, bro. Like, equality will never work, <laughs> but people will still call me a hippie. The Pareto, it's a universal, people. And that's what happens or is just being played out statistically night after night on tables. Life isn't fair. Games aren't fair. <laughs> like uh, aunties we're talking about, you might get hit with the big blind to start your life. And I think the only thing that matters is grabbing the right seat at the right table at the right time. <laughs> Literally. 
your own mountain is your mountain. You got to deal with your blind and your ante up. And then make your way to the right table. Have we done enough outside comparisons yet? Am I going to compare this to me gambling my life with fucking media? <laughs> Bro, it is kind of scientific. What did Lenny Bruce say? Uh, crowds have intelligence. I'll have that real quote in his book. But yeah, there, there's a science to this. It's not really gambling <laughs> at a certain point. Um, here's an actual poker tip. The ante is the best time to feel out someone else's hand. Yeah, you could tell when people are playing conservative and all that. Quote, bigger one in the chapter. As the ante increases, you loosen up your starting hand requirements. There are four reasons for you to loosen up. First, you are getting better pot odds. Second, it costs too much money in antes to wait for big hands. Third, your opponents are playing weaker hands. And finally, when you play too tight against observant opponents, they will give you no action when you do get a bigger hand. Woo! <laughs> when you have a smarter audience, you have to give them more action. Otherwise, they're not going to play into any of your hands. Dude, this is some high-level shit. I go hot on the felt. <laughs> what happens when uh, black people get into poker? They're going to put spinners on their chips. They're going to anti-Jemima. <laughs> That's good enough to end the chapter. Let's go to number four. <laughs> Effective odds. This one's more about the pot odds and yeah, expectation. Quote, Pot odds are the odds that the pot is giving you for calling a bet. If there's $50 in the pot and the final bet was $10, you are getting 5 to 1 odds for your call. That's much better than a slot machine. Uh, this whole subsection was about getting burnt by flushes. And if you don't have the flush, someone else usually does. Seriously, yeah, you always overlook that one when you're playing. You're thinking in numbers and percentages... But then there's some idiot matching up shapes and colors. And that's the guy that gets lucky. I'm still obsessed with that like uh, percentage counter in the bottom of the poker games you see on TV. I said before it's not wholly accurate. Like are they taking into account the flush? I bet they are. Which makes me think I want one of those in my life. <laughs> Augmented reality. I start wearing Google glasses again. You have a 60% shot, Nick, at taking this girl home. <laughs> and every girl you look at, it gives you a percent. <laughs> Bro, that's what Dan Bilzerian was up to. <laughs> he should have invented that. He incurred risk. His entire life was girls, weed, and guns. Hell yeah. Scumbag. Very American fellow. That guy wasn't doing slot machines. He was running slot machines. David says, figuring effective odds may sound complicated, but it is a simple matter. You add all the calls you will have made, assuming you play to the end, to determine the total amount you will lose if you don't make your hand. Then compare this figure to... It's very confusing, sorry. This is just the sunken cost fallacy. If you're going to go two rounds and see the river and the flop, you're probably going to say, I'll just stick this hand out. But smarter players know, okay, this is a perfect opportunity for me to bleed this guy. 
So unless you have that gut feeling that you're going to win, stop with the guesswork. David, he told this story about Stu Unger, famous poker player, came out of New York. He was a whiz. He went to the world champions, and he stuck out the last hand with a 2-7. Notoriously worst hand in poker. Can't even make a straight out of it. And he won a half a million dollar pot. He had less than a 30% chance of winning. Stu said he had a stronger gut feeling than ever, so he stuck out the hand and won. Especially if you don't have a lot of data yet, you're new to poker, you can't trust your gut. You have to refine it a little bit. Effective odds. It's a theory. That's why I'm not trying to explain it too well. At the end of the day, we can only go off of laws and your gut. Fuck all of your theories. Gets technical. Mid-chapter talking about implied odds. And you gotta run the odds on if your ideal card was flipped. So this is kind of just like counting cards. Yeah, bro, it's easier to think in implied odds like in chess when you see all the pieces in front of you. This is high-level gaming. You wonder if, like, Ninja and Tifu would be any good at poker. <laughs> Doesn't uh, Mr. Beast put on a lot of big poker games? Yeah, they bet entire channels. <laughs> Got a quote. A question you must always address, then, is when to play a hand straightforwardly and when to use deception. Mm, the marriage theory of deception. If I'm a creepy weirdo and try to manipulate my spouse... It's better in the long run. Uh, he says it's like shooting with a bad billiards player. They clog up the table. Yeah, you don't want to play with people who are doing too many mind games. That's what some of the newbies try to do, he's saying. David said in professional circles, when the pot gets big enough, you barely see any bluffing. So that Stu Ungar story with the 2-7, that's why it's so nuts. He's at the highest level on the last hand, and he won half a million off a bluff. Goes back to our in-time example. You can't, No one thinks you're actually going to bluff when your life is on the line, the last hand. If this was like old Western times, Stu Ungar would have got a gun pulled on him. <laughs> How'd you pull that off with a 2-7? What in tarnation? You pansy ass coming into my town bluffing on the last card. You're a yeller belly. I don't have a cowboy drop. I need that. And this kind of goes back to my Lenny Bruce thing. Groups of people have hunches. When everyone stops bluffing at the table, you're playing a different game at that point. It's more of a betting game than a deception game. And here's another good rule of thumb he had. Bluffing works well with high cards on the table. People really do get ornery. When there's an ace down on the table, <laughs> that's your time to take advantage. He's saying, don't get hung up on effective odds. Yeah, because again, this is theory. Quote, the basis of your decision to play normally or deceptive is simple. You should play each session and each hand of each session in the way that will win the most money and lose the least. <laughs> Thanks for fucking 200 pages, David Slatsky. Win the most money, lose the least. Welcome to the game. <laughs> you're not here to follow fucking rules. Follow your own rules. If you're winning the most, losing the least, you just invented a new theory. 
you whoa, do you hear that in the background? I think that's the Academy thanking you for a new theory. Chapter five, the free card. This is the best position at the poker table. You're three left of the dealer. Every single bet has passed you. You could continue to the next card. So right of the dealer and three left is good. He says, quote, giving a free card means checking a hand you could have bet on. Uh, of course, when you check with the intention of raising, you are giving a free card. So don't lose money. When you give other people free cards, you're losing potential money. Take it when you could get it. You have the power of the Federal Reserve when you're right of the dealer. You could <laughs> make other people have to ante up higher. You can inflate the next round. Damn, you're the bank. He says if your opponent is a 9 to 1 underdog getting 6 to 1 odds, you should still bet. In this case, you hope that opponent calls, but you don't mind when he folds. His folding is better than you giving him a free 10% chance to make his hand and beat you. I'm saying just squash the underlings. That's always what you got to beware of in this game. Yeah, bro. Nobody at the table gets a free 10% chance on you. You got to be ruthless. You're the felt manager in the Department of Casino Security. <laughs> the Department of Gaming, they call it. They need to start regulating Tinder because I'm cleaning up. <laughs> he said um, some more gay stuff. Yeah, if you're playing a boys' night poker, this is the best way to suss out who's going hard. Playing to win. Got to have a business mentality when you're at the poker table. It's not always about fun. And that's the guy who honestly ruins it in guys night. Like, seriously, go find a real table or start playing online. I don't know if I trust that yet. Online poker. <laughs> David has a quote here. It should be clear how valuable it is to get a free card when you don't have the best hand. That free card might turn a hand you would have folded into a winner. Yes, take your free cards whenever you find it. It might be leading to something bigger. That's the funniest thing when <laughs> the dummy, the guy that's just there to get drunk, he folds when he had a free card and someone tells him. That's another way to suss everybody out who tells him, bro, you got a free card and then there's the dog, the wolf, who's just trying to win and not let his friend get free cards. <laughs> another quote, when in doubt, make sure you don't make a mistake that costs you the pot. Checking and giving an opponent with a worse hand a free card may cost you the pot when he outdraws you. End of the chapter, he goes into the semi-bluff. Semi-bluff is a bet where there is some chance your opponent will fold a hand he should have played. So play unethically. Don't tell people when they have free cards. <laughs> Shine a mirror in someone's eyes. Normally that would work except for poker players wear sunglasses. I'm going to go to a poker game and wear black smudges underneath my eyes. <laughs> what? It's a deception. You guys can't see my eyes. He said the semi-bluff works best in amateur stud games because there's so many cards that people get lost. Every time a card is flipped, the exponential odds get multiplied by like a million. So pay attention in early game. That's your best time to get a read. Semi-bluff. This has so much joke opportunity. <laughs> when you're dealing with the devil, 
Johann Faust. That guy should have semi-bluffed the devil. <laughs> Highbrow literary mixed nonfiction. <laughs> what was that song where the kid gambled his soul to sing off with the devil? Weren't Satanists upset when some kid on a fiddle stepped all over their guy? <laughs> Didn't the devil create rock and roll? He fucking lost to a fiddler. Enough of that. Chapter 6, this one's the second last, raising. He says, remember the point of poker is to make your opponent play differently than he if had knew what you were holding. Yacht, quote, any time you raise for whatever specific tactical reason, you are doing so to avoid making a mistake yourself. According to the fundamental theorem, and to cause your opponents to make mistakes. Mistakes can be weapons. Even raising when you don't have a good hand, that's a mistake, right? Well, you're finding out who's stingy. It's just a way to get more information. More helpful information. We'll make this one shorter, second to last. He says, quote, when you raise to get people out, what you are already doing is raising to cut down their odds. In fact, you may sometimes cut their odds so severely that you hope they will call rather than fold after you raise. Shut up, dude. <laughs> if you force your friend with five chips, he could have held out until he had triple aces. You have to squash people when you have the opportunity. God damn, you have to become a psychopath at the poker table. David, snake-like advice here. He says if you suspect the person to your right will be driven out, Raise the hand. It's going to have to go around to everybody. Yeah, be a dick. <laughs> this is like higher than a semi-bluff. It's being a dick. He called it trick play. It must be fucking annoying to be uh, someone at the table who's doing trick play. He doesn't know what's in your hand. He doesn't care. He's just putting chaos into the table. <laughs> Love it. It's fun because you could leave the poker table, but in life, trolls are a little bit more angry because there's nowhere else to go. I still like trolls. I still like trick play. It's <laughs> what I tell all my hoes, trick play. <laughs> he said, like, uh, the guy's 2-7. There was this other guy, Yuri, and he did a trick play that won him $500,000. Yeah, bro. It's like the same reason on the fourth down you throw a Hail Mary. If you made it to the final pot and you don't have much going for you, do a trick play. David says, the weaker the player, the more likely he is to call your raise with any kind of hand. <laughs> it, you can't even bluff against dumb people. He's going, casino odds make this challenging. Yeah, so play in underground tables. <laughs> like the guy who plays really aggressive thinks he's controlling the table because he has some hookers there with him in Vegas. <laughs> He's messing up the flow of the table to play a fair game. Here's another quote. Raising is often a better alternative than folding, with calling the worst of the three. And there's no universal here. You need all three, but just get it in your head. Raise sometimes. Be unpredictable. Like, if you get painted as a conservative player, people will know how to raise on you. Not good. Final quote for the chapter summarizes it. 
Furthermore, raising may often be the best alternative to folding, while calling is altogether incorrect. A lot of average players find this concept hard to believe, yet as we have seen it, undisputably true. It has further emphasized the adage that a caller in poker is a loser in poker. You gotta be the one advancing the game. The guy who's controlling the table usually wins. Unless you get lucky with a trick play, control the table. Stop calling. Make your own calls. Chapter 7, final one. The Psychology of Poker. He begins with a good tip about reading hands. First, start by burning a bushel of sage. <laughs> reading hands. Quote, The ability to read hands might be the most important weapon a poker player can have. As the fundamental theorem of poker suggests, the key mistake in poker is to play your hand differently from the way you would have played it if you knew what your opponent had. See how important that he keeps reiterating it. And if you could mess up someone else's psychology, you're going to win. He's going, I have zero tells. I'm the best poker player ever. Shut up, dude. If I ever go pro, I'm going to get plastic surgery, cover up all my orifices, be the first Helen Keller poker player. Quote, the more you play against that deserve. <laughs> the more you play against average to good players, the easier it becomes to read your opponent's hand because they tend to check, bet, and raise for logical reasons. With a certain consistency, you learn their play. I like this quote. Um, some people learn by being told. Some people learn by catching mistakes. And so like this poker book, <laughs> yes, the theorem will help you get the basics down, but you're only going to learn by catching good people make mistakes or just consistently seeing dumb people make the same mistake that's for everything telling you use these tips outside of poker mixed nonfiction. another good doozy of a quote what we mean by the psychology of poker is getting into your opponent's head analyzing how they think and even determining what they think and what you think they think Oh my god, double reversed, upside down, nega psychology. <laughs> Just be crazy. That's the only way to really get under people's skin. Act crazy, baby. It reminds me of this quote. <laughs> I can't remember who said it. It's all time great. And it's from like Soviet Russia. The rules are simple. They lie to us. We know they're lying. They know we know that they're lying. But they keep lying to us, and we keep pretending to believe them. Maybe it's more comprehensible in acrylic, whatever their language is. Nobody thinks you're smart in Russia if you go, Well, well, who is they? Shut the bleat up, the oligarchs. Okay, back to poker. Um, yeah, you, we know you're lying. I know that you know you're lying. At a certain point, it's who has the hand. And right now, nobody can survive on themselves, to bring it back to that example, so we don't have any hand. And in the poker table, seriously, get fucking crazy to the point nobody knows what is hand anymore. <laughs> Quote, at the expert level of poker, the dialectic of trying to outwit your opponent can sometimes extend to so many levels that you must finally abandon psychology altogether and rely on game theory. Once you know all the tricks and the lies, 
you gotta play the game and try to win the game. <laughs> Fuck! There's no way outside of any game ever. The theory is always there for us. It's to fall back on your Kalia. We gotta rely on our creativity, our gut to win the game. And I semi-bluffed the whole episode. I'm not gonna lie. I want you greedy bastards around the tables. I don't give a fuck about actually being free. I want greed. I want all of the knickers to be high rollers. We're going blue chip here. Big stock only. <laughs> Get towards the end. Final quote from David. There are endless kinds of mistakes you can detect in your opponent's play. And when you detect them, there is always a way to take advantage of them. Why are Israelis so bad at poker? They have too many tells. Yeah, I didn't expect this poker book to fit in so well with the ethos of Nick's nonfiction. This is what we do here. Nick's nonfiction every single week relating a random-ass genre of book to the human condition. <laughs> Thus concluding another timeless edition. Thank you guys for staying tuned. What do we got here? July. Switch up the pace. Enough of the money, the gaming. What's outside of that system? Art. Ladies and gentlemen, we will present The Secret Life of Salvador Dali. Written by the artist himself. An autobiography. He uh, kind of rules. See, this guy has some of the trippiest art ever. I went to the Denver Botanical Garden and they had the exhibit... I'm telling you, I was inside the surrealist landscape. He does cubism, like he grifted off of Picasso. This guy is one of a kind. And by that, I mean he he had zero shame to rip people off in an era of art where there was integrity. Dolly, he would have fit well into the YouTuber landscape. Definitely going to be a good addition next week. Thank you guys, the listener, for being here one more time. Seriously, I hope you took something away from the show today. And if you do go out and make some winnings, please comment on the video. I want to hear about that. Check out Harry Schwant on Instagram, patreon.com slash the niche. Let me get a random soundboard effect to take this special edition home. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick's Nonfiction will be back here in seven short days. Love you all. See you then. Peace.